The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Luke. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. The gospel of the Lord. Praise be to you, Lord Christ. Thank you for being here with us today. We please pray with me. Father, we do ask now as we come to your word, we do pray that the words of my mouth, the meditation of all of our hearts this morning would be pleasing, would be acceptable in your sight, O oh Lord. You are indeed our rock. You are our real and true redeemer. So Father, take your words and by the power of your Holy Spirit, bring them down into the very marrow of our bones, the very bottom of our hearts, that we might be changed, be made more like your son Jesus in Christ's name. Amen. Well, hopefully you are paying attention and realize the very beginning of your liturgies. This is Ascension Sunday. If you didn't tell from the readings from Acts chapter 1 and Luke 24, we are celebrating and remembering Jesus' ascension into heaven on this day. In general, though, I don't think we spend much time thinking about Jesus' ascension at all, perhaps except as an explanation for why he isn't at this zip code somewhere in the world. Certainly not, I don't think we think about the ascension as fundamental or essential aspect of Jesus' redemption and atonement of us, or as necessary for our forgiveness of sins. Sometimes we think about it as a strange quirk, I guess. Well, where else was he going to go? Several years ago, I had a coworker who was trying to wean their oldest child off of uh, his pacifier. So what they decided to do was get a helium balloon, and they tied this pacifier to the helium balloon, then took the child out into their backyard so they could, you know, have a, a going away service for the pacifier to send it up into the heavens where he could no longer be with it. And, you know, so the boy could put on his big boy pants and soothe himself to sleep or something like that. So they're all standing out there in their backyard. They say, say goodbye to Passy, and then they let go of the balloon, and it goes up about 20 feet and gets stuck in a tree. And so now this poor kid is just standing with this pacifier just out of reach. And so whenever he was upset, he would run out in the backyard and just stand and scream, goodbye, Passy. So it was a little bit of a parenting fail, I think, for them. But I often have thought about that in connection to the ascension, because I wonder sometimes that's what we think the ascension is. Jesus is gone now. Still alive, but he's not present anymore. He's just up, sort of out of reach. He can't really comfort us anymore. And now all of us down here have to put on our big boy pants and soothe ourselves. I think that misses the point, actually, what's really going on biblically at the ascension. 
So I just want to answer that question today. Why did Jesus rise, sorry, ascend, go up into heaven? Why did he go up? And to answer that, two things, to go up and to go out, to go up and to go out. Well, first to go up. One reason I think we struggle with understanding what's going on at the ascension is we're not highly attuned to the biblical imagery and biblical symbolism. For example, all throughout the scriptures, whenever the people of God, whenever anyone goes to meet with God, to worship him or to talk with him, they have to, it's always said in the scriptures, they have to go up. They go up to be with God. They ascend to God. Like in Psalm 24, which says, who will ascend to the hill of the Lord? We have an entire part of the Psalms of the Psalter that are called Songs of Ascent, in which the nation of Israel would sing these songs as they were going up to Jerusalem. But they were going up to Jerusalem. Because Jerusalem is not the highest topographical point in the nation of Israel. There are many places geographically that were taller than Jerusalem. But the biblical imagery, wherever you were at in the world, wherever, even if you were going downhill, if you were on the way to Jerusalem, you were going up. You were ascending. Even if you were coming from Mount Everest, in other words. Why? Why does the Bible talk that way? Because you were going to Jerusalem, to the temple, to meet with God in his presence. And the temple was the place where the realm of God, where heaven itself met with earth. So as you were going, you were literally going up to the highest place on earth, symbolically and spiritually. In fact, when you came to the temple, what you did is you progressed symbolically through to really climb a mountain. You entered first at the very beginning through the seas, through the water of the sea, the baptismal font, or the washing font, just like our baptismal font at the back there. They're bronze basins that represented the sea and the water. And you would pass through those and go up into the temple. And there you'd go past the showbread, the produce of the land. And then you'd go past that to the lampstand, the stars, the lights in the heavens. And then you would go to the veil that separated the holy from the holy of holies. The veil that was a symbolic representation of the separation between the physical world and the spiritual world. When you would go through that veil, you would enter to the mercy seat, to the Holy of Holies, to the very place of God's throne, except you couldn't make that journey. That place was too holy. It was too pure. The high priest alone had to go for you, and he had to carry a sacrifice with him. He had to carry your sacrifice with him, a sacrifice that had to be made at the very beginning outside the temple before you could even ascend up the mountain. You would offer a burnt offering. That's what you would do. A sacrifice to be accepted before God in his presence. It was called a burnt offering because the offering, the sacrifice, was burned all the way up. That's why in English we translate it into burnt offering. Do you know what it actually says in Hebrew? In Hebrew, it's called the Ola sacrifice, the go up sacrifice. It's the ascension sacrifice. In other words, the sacrifice at the very beginning of the temple in order to symbolically climb the mountain to God's throne, that was called the go-up sacrifice, the ascension sacrifice. In Luke here, our gospel passage, Jesus tells his disciples before his own ascension in verse 44 of Luke 24, that everything written about him in the Old Testament must be fulfilled. What Jesus is saying is that the Old Testament sacrificial system, all of it was about me. It was about Jesus. It was about what he was doing here on earth. He was the point of it, and he is the end of it. Jesus saying, my death, my resurrection, and yes, in a moment, my ascension as well. is so that as verse 45 of Luke 24 says, your sins might be forgiven, so that you might be accepted into God's presence. See, Jesus is essentially saying in his ascension, I am the Ola sacrifice for you. I am fulfilling the Old Testament promises that God made to his people and to you. 
To do that, he had to take himself, the dead and now living sacrifice, and himself, the final high priest, not to the old temple, but into the actual spiritual throne of God himself. So right now, this very moment, before God's throne, eternally, forever, your sacrifice of acceptance, your sacrifice for sin, if you're united to Jesus, is standing perfect, sufficient before the face of God the Father, saying, you are accepted in Jesus, in God's presence. Jesus had to go up to bring you into God's presence. Or think of it this way. God's purpose in redeeming us is to deal with the barriers that keep us from him, that we might be reconciled to God. At Christmas, we celebrate the incarnation in which God comes into human space. At the ascension, Jesus takes his human body and brings it into God's space. At Christmas, we celebrate God with us. Today, at the ascension, we celebrate us with God. Because of Jesus' ascension, we are accepted into God's presence, and we can share in his divine life. So what does this mean? What can you not forgive yourself for? What burden of guilt are you carrying around, refusing to let go of? In which you are working harder and harder and sacrificing more and more to make yourself right. Not only sacrificing yourself, but sacrificing others around you, your family or friends, in order to pay for your guilt that you are carrying around with you. Whatever you've done, your sacrifice will never be enough. It will never be enough because you can never do it forever. But whatever you have done, Jesus has a sacrifice for you that he has taken into forever, into the eternity, into the eternal realm. So your sacrifice can be an eternal sacrifice. You can be truly forgiven, fully forgiven and free, and you can let that burden go, be taken off from you by Christ so you can even look at it yourself and not shrink back from it, but know that God has fully and finally dealt with it. Or are you ashamed? Maybe it's not guilt that you struggle with, but feeling that you are unworthy or unloved, unlovable. When others get close to you and get too close to your life, you cringe and shrink back because you don't want people that close to you. You're afraid that you are not worthy. In the ascension, you are not only forgiven, but you are welcomed into God's presence because Jesus has gone up and taken you with him by faith. You are wanted by him, in other words. You are desired by God. Not only that, but your human pains and sadness and hurts and betrayals and weaknesses, they are all brought before God the Father in Jesus' very human body that stands before God. Remember, even Jesus' resurrected body still carries the marks of his betrayal and the marks of his violent death in his hands and in his side. And they are brought up and stand even now as a witness in God's holy presence. Because Jesus has gone up, your sins are forgiven. Your prayers are heard. Injustices and evils are unhidden in God's sight, but before his face at all times. And you are welcomed and you are wanted by the God of the universe. Jesus did not ascend to say, it's time for you now to put on your big boy pants. Good luck 
go out there on your own. I hope you'll make it. His ascension, in fact, was the very opposite of that. It was to break down the barriers to God's holy presence, to welcome you in, and to assure you that you have full access to God himself. But Christ's going up is also his going out. It's also his going out. In our Acts passage, the disciples believe that what Jesus says here in verse 6, you notice that they think he's going to restore the nation of Israel. What they are focused on is the physical place of Israel, the nation of Israel, and the Jerusalem and the temple. That was the place where the disciples knew that they had access to God the Father. And that's where they believed that Jesus was going to restore that glory, fix it, and make that good again. And so they're confused when Jesus goes up. You notice they're all sort of standing there, gawking, staring into the heavens like, what's happening now? But what they didn't understand is the veil and the Holy of Holies had already been torn down. And they did not know, but the temple was going to be destroyed and these altars were going to be broken. What was happening is the disciples began to understand this access to God was no longer in the temple. But in verse 47 of Luke 24, Jesus is saying it's going to go to the nations. As Acts 1.18 says, Jesus says it's going to go out to the ends of the earth. The way to go up into God's presence was no longer through the temple, but through Jesus himself. So that the ascension paves the way for each and every Christian community throughout the world to the ends of the earth. They become a temple into the very entrance to relationship with God. A place to go up into the presence of God through union with Jesus. And that is why the fire of the Holy Spirit that we'll celebrate next Sunday on Pentecost Sunday, when the Holy Spirit descends upon the nation of Israel, that's what we are going to be celebrating. That's why the Holy Spirit comes down on the heads of men and women in the upper room, because they, of course, us, become the altars. Now we become, our lives become the place where the sacrifice burns with a living sacrifice offered up to God, going up into God's presence, burning with his life, yet Unlike all those Old Testament sacrifices, not consumed, but living sacrifices, kept alive by the living sacrifice, Jesus, who is in heaven for us, so that we now go out being the witness of Christ's presence to a broken and hurting world, carrying on his mission of reconciling the world to God. As he has gone up, we go out, empowered by him. In the Old Testament, Another section of the Old Testament, what Jesus also has to fulfill, 2 Kings chapter 2, we have another story of an ascension. It's a prophet who ascends. His name is Elijah, and he is taken up to heaven in a fiery chariot. But before he ascends, he has a disciple, Elisha, and Elisha follows Elijah around everywhere. He wants to be with Elijah because he knows that Elijah is about to be taken up, and so Elisha wants to be given Elijah's spirit. He wants to be given the responsibility of continuing Elijah's mission out into the world. And so what happens is Elijah goes out doing some miraculous events. He does them in Bethel. Then he does them in Jericho. Then he does them at the Jordan River. And every way, all along the way, Elisha follows him and witnesses what Elijah does. And he says, I want to be the inheritor of your mission and spirit. And so God gives that to Elisha. After Elijah is taken up, Elisha receives Elijah's spirit and goes out now on his mission. You know what Elisha does? In 2 Kings chapter 2, Elisha goes backwards and reiterates and does all the miraculous things that Elijah did, but he does them from Jordan to Jericho and to Bethel. Going backwards, reiterating that Elisha now carried the spirit of Elijah and was there to finish Elijah's job. Jesus had to fulfill that in the Old Testament as well. And he does. 
What did Jesus say to the disciples gathered here in Acts chapter 1 on Mount Olives, on the Mount of Olives? He says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria to the ends of the earth. Luke is the author. Luke is the author. Luke is the author of Acts. And I do not believe it's a coincidence that he's also the author of Luke. And Luke 9.51 says this. When the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. You know what happens in Luke from that point on? Jesus moves from Samaria to Judea to Jerusalem. He goes on the same path that he just tells his disciples to go on as well after they receive the Holy Spirit. Just like Elijah and just like Elisha in the Old Testament, Jesus' ascension sends his own spirit out upon his people, empowering them with the holy responsibility to now go out and continue his mission of forgiveness and reconciliation and the reordering of the world after Jesus' pattern. As Jesus goes up, we go out, taking a holy responsibility to have our very bodies become the physical presence of Jesus himself in this world, living sacrifices, just as Jesus is the living sacrifice in eternity before the face of God the Father. That's Paul's argument here in Romans chapter 12. That's what he says to the Christians here in Romans, and of course to Christians all throughout history and time, and to us. Therefore, he begins here, verse 1 of chapter 12 for the Romans. After everything that Paul said in chapters 1 through 11 in Romans about Jesus being our redemption, about our union and relationship with God the Father through Jesus and through faith, therefore, now he says in chapter 12, you have a holy responsibility to become a living sacrifice, offering your lives up to God, empowered by the Holy Spirit. Verse 6 here, Paul says, we have differing gifts according to the grace of given to us by God. Or here's how I would say that in light of 2 Kings chapter 2. We have many Elishas in the church with different responsibilities, different aptitudes, gifts, and abilities, but we are all united together and knitted as one because all of our gifts come from one source, from Jesus, from God, who made you as you are, with a real purpose to be used as you are, with your gifts and desires and interests. God gave them to you. Paul says in verse 6, let's use them. Offer them up. You're not watching the game from the sidelines. You are in it, men and women, boys and girls. You are in the game. What are you doing, Paul says? Get up. Get involved. You've been brought up by Jesus Christ in the presence of God. You've been commissioned and empowered by him to go out, to take his gifts that he has given to you, to be his holy presence to a broken chaotic, loveless, and of course, dangerous world. He mentions several things in this list in Romans chapter 12, verses 6 through 8. It's not exhaustive. It differs from other lists in Ephesians and 1 Corinthians, but you can see how varied it is. Prophetic, insightful speech, service, teaching, encouragement, wealth, leadership, taking care of those in need. Paul says they all must be done, and they must be done well because it matters. Some just need to be done. In service, serve. In teaching, teach. Others need to be done in the right way. If you're wealthy and contribute, do it generously. If you serve others, if you take care of their needs, do it cheerfully. If you are leading, don't do it passively and pathetically. Do it zealously, passionately. Because undergirding all of these things is love, which Paul moves to in verse 9. And then he just seems to riff on through the rest of the chapter 12. Love is to will the good of the other. That's what it means to love, to will the good of the other. And that is the ground of God's very nature. 
And of course, the very beating drum of Jesus' sacrifice. And so, of course, us, the church, living sacrifices, who are given holy responsibilities to be his representatives, we must beat to that same drum. Love and willing the good of the other must animate all we do. For the rest of chapter 12, verses 9 through the end of the chapter, there's lots that can be said. I wish we could go into every single one and think about it, but here's what my encouragement to you is. Later today, come back to Romans 12. Go to verse 9 and read through the rest. It will give you a picture of what a living sacrifice looks like, smells like, feels like. And simply ask God, where in this list is a hole in my life in which there is not love, in which I don't look like what I'm reading here? Ask God to reveal that to you and begin to change it. There's a couple of things to note here, to give your attention to. I'll say them in my own translation if you want. Paul begins at verse 9. He says, let love be genuine. Don't let your love be fake. He says, hate what hurts others. Abhor that. It doesn't produce good in their life. Affirm what is good, not what is evil. Affirm what accords with him and his nature, not with things that do not. Further down, he says, do you not, rather, he says, outdo one another in showing honor. Spend more time and bringing honor to others than honor to yourself. Let me share with you a little sadness in my heart that some of you might share. Probably not too many, but yesterday, Liverpool lost the Champions League final. I know that means little to many of you, but this meant a lot, painfully, to me. Uh, they lost by one goal in the Champions League final, but they had a really incredible year. And Jurgen Klopp, who is the manager, the coach of Liverpool, he won a Coach of the Year award. It was an honor for him, of course. But Jurgen is a Christian. You know what he did? He flew every one of his coaching staff, highest, lowest, every one of his coaching staff, brought them to his award ceremony. And on the stage, he said, if you win this award, you are either a genius or you have the best coaching staff in the world. It's a simple thing. But you notice, he shifted all the focus of honor to his staff. He took it off of himself because he was saying, I'm not a genius. But of course, he shifted it to all the other coaches who didn't say anything to their coaches because he's calling them geniuses. He had moved himself out of the place of honor, even though he was receiving the honor. And he highlighted others and made them the focus of honor. Do you do that in your workplace? Verse 11 here, Paul says in my translation, your love should be hot to the touch. It says fervent in the spirit. Or one translation says aglow with the Holy Spirit. Your love also should focus, verse 12 here, on hope, rejoicing in hope. And you will the good of the other. In the midst of tragedy, it does not give up. It remembers our hope. It remembers verse 11 of Acts chapter 1, that just as Christ ascended, the angels say, he will return, and he will put everything to perfection, and he will judge every evil act. So love, and those animated by love, can be patient, even in the midst of tribulation and suffering, even in the midst of evil done to us. Not giving up, certainly not being passive, but being patient, and always going up into God's presence with prayer. Love will look for need. It will look for opportunities to be hospitable, to give of its life to others. And stunningly, this at the end, it will bless those who persecute you. Even in the face of persecution, even in the face of hatred, love, living sacrifices, 
will still demand to will the good of the enemy. Because Jesus never stopped going to the cross, even for those who betrayed him and killed him. It will bless and not curse. Even online, even down the street, even to the ends of the earth. This is your holy responsibility. Christ has gone up, brought you into the presence of God, into heaven itself. You belong to him. You are truly, eternally forgiven in him. He has welcomed you. He is with you. Christ has gone up. He has also gone out in you to be the living sacrifice of God's love before a world that needs to be reconciled to him. So may each of us, may you and I, may we be aglow with God's spirit in all of our holy responsibilities. Amen. Father, we do pray that you would give us your spirit, that our love would look like and be like your love for us and your love in the world, that we might be your presence in a world seeking and waiting and needing you to show up and to be present. May we be the very hands and feet of your son, Jesus. In Christ's name, amen.